this. Lord, thank you for this time to share your word, to share your truth. Um, and so we just ask for your presence this morning. Help my words to come out uh, right and just uh, help me to convey what the things that are that you've been showing me um, over the last couple of weeks. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So, you know, a couple months ago I was preaching and I talked about a superpower that we have. And, and I don't know if you remember that. It's, it's the power of blessing that we have. And, and it comes from um, Numbers chapter 6. And I just want to remind you of this superpower because I'm going to talk about another superpower today. Um, so you'll have two superpowers that you can begin to use. Um, so the, the first one I talked about comes from number six, and it's the blessing portion. 622, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, these were the priests, right, Levites, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And so we're all very familiar with that passage. But to me, the superpower God talks about in the very next verse. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. And so the superpower that I talked about is, is we have the ability to bless people in the name of God and he will follow through on that. That is amazing. So in, in Numbers 19, 5 through 6, God talks about you are a kingdom of priests. And in 1 Peter 2, 9, Peter says we who follow Jesus are a royal priesthood. So part of following Jesus means you have this superpower of blessing people in the name of God, and God will follow up on that blessing to make it happen. They will put my name on the Israelites, and I will bless them. That's amazing. Now, the other thing I wanted you to get from that is permission is authority. When God gives you permission to put his name on people, that means you have the authority to do it. And if you do nothing else in life than to go out in the world and bless people in the name of God, Say this blessing over them. Mark them with the name of God so that God will find them out and say, hey, one of my people put my name on this person and I'm going to bless that person. That is a wonderful life, a wonderful ministry just in that. <clears throat> so, but that's not the superpower I'm going to talk about today. The superpower I want to talk about today is learning how to set people free by speaking the truth. Um, and that comes from John 8, verses 31 and 32 says, To the Jews who believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, we hear this a lot in popular culture that, Oh, if you know the truth, the truth is going to set you free. But that's not the whole of the verse. The verse is, to the Jews who believed in Jesus, he said, if you follow my teaching, you really show yourself to be my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
So there's a bit bigger process here than what the world likes to say. Oh, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So what I want you to know, it's kind of the title here, is the difference between truth and perspective. Um, a lot of times we think that whatever our perspective is in life is the truth. And I'm going to show you that that's wrong. So, I'm going to give you a test. So, looking at this image, let's see if I can increase it a bit. Okay. Looking at this image on the screen, there's three vans. Um, which van do you think is the biggest? Simple test, right? Would you think the one, up, the first one is the biggest? Raise your hand. Do you think the second is the biggest? Raise your hand. Nobody? If you think the third is the biggest, raise your hand. Everybody? I see a lot of hands. Raise your hand. Come on now. You've, this is a test. You get scored. Okay, most people. Now I'll give you a fourth option. Who thinks they're all the same size? Oh, pretty good number, huh? You've seen this before, huh? No? I mean, just as it appears, the third one seems like it's almost twice the size of the first one, right? But the truth is, they're all the same size. Now, how is it that it, the three look different sizes? I mean, the, the, the roof of the second one is higher than the roof of the first. And the roof of the third is higher than the roof of the second. Therefore, do the math, right, Chris? The third must be bigger than the first. But the truth is, they're the same size. Now, are you going to believe me or are you going to believe your eyes? you're probably going to believe your eyes, right? <laughs> Dennis isn't going to tell you the truth, but I am telling you the truth. So, so let's, let me show you how we can say this. So if, would you agree that if something has the same height, the same width, the same breadth, um, two things have the same height, width, and breadth, that they're the same size? Okay, I would agree with that. So let's measure. So I'm going to measure from the front of this wheel to the back. And then let's take that measurement and take it to the next. Same size, right? And let's take it to the back one. Same size, right? So the length of it is the same. So let's try the height. So I'm gonna measure right here from the top to the bottom there, go to this one, same height, and same height, all right? So same length, same height, let's try width. So let's measure across the windshield here, okay, same, same, same. So although they look different sizes, they have the same length, the same height, and the same width. So 
Perspective and truth are different things. But oftentimes we think they're the same thing, right? So now let's just kind of look at it this way. Here I'll make a little copy of this one. Move it here and move it here. Wow, yeah. You know, it's the same size. So, so what's, how does this apply to our superpower, right? Um, and I guess the other thing is just, you know, a lot of the crowd <clears throat> thought the third one uh, was, the, was the truth, you know, that the third was the largest. And sometimes we'll say, well, there's a lot of people that believe with me, you know. Um, but that doesn't mean just because you have the people believing with you that it's the truth, right? And even though you know it's the same size, sometimes even when we know the truth, our perspective doesn't change. But we can still make a decision. Now, if, if I asked everybody, which of these three do you think are the largest, you'd probably pass the test with 100%, right? Everybody would say, well, the truth is they're all the same size. So you can choose to walk in the truth or you can choose to rely on your perspective. And that's the superpower that we have. Jesus says, if you believe in me, if you follow my teachings, you show yourself to be my disciples, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free as you learn to walk in the truth rather than just in your perspective. And so we're going to explore that idea a little bit more. So one of the things is then, so this is a visual image of how our perspective can change. So if you want to know the trick about this, the issue is, um, is related to what's called the vanishing point in an image. A vanishing point um, is kind of centered here if you look at how the road kind of disappears in the background, right? And so these lines along each side of the road and even on the tree line converge back here, which is called the vanishing point. And so the vanishing point is the background context from which you're interpreting the images of the van. And so the vans that are closer to the vanishing point appear larger than the ones that are further away from the vanishing point. So even though your brain realizes that, the context in which those facts are placed shape how you interpret the facts. So the fact is, all these vans are the same size, but the interpretation given the background, the context of where they're located makes you see them differently. And even though you know the truth, it's hard to shift your perspective uh, because our brains are hardwired because you're imposing a three-dimensional image on a two-dimensional screen, okay? So, we can understand that in terms of how it happens visually, but I want to talk to you about how that happens psychologically and spiritually. I was reading an article recently, um, I think from CNBC, about a 77-year-old who was scammed out of $660,000. And it all started with a simple pop-up window on her computer that said, um, 
somebody has hacked your computer. And it was supposedly a, a window that popped up from uh, Windows uh, Microsoft and had a phone number. Call this immediately to uh, help us to, to fix your computer and to get rid of the stolen information. And so the lady called that number. Uh, and, and supposedly a Microsoft engineer picked up on the line and uh, said that, yeah, foreign hackers had hijacked her computer and stolen some sensitive information, uh, that her financial accounts were probably at risk, and that she needed to take action immediately in order to secure her savings. And, uh, and, and the lady said, well, you know, this is just terrible. I've got to do something. He said, well, what bank do you work at? I mean, what bank do you bank at? And she said, well, PNC. And he said, well, good, they're a partner of ours. I can transfer you to somebody who will help you in, at, at your bank. And so the lady accepted his help. Thank you for helping me. Um, and so it wasn't somebody at her bank. It was an accomplice of this guy posing as a Microsoft engineer, right? Well, the guy at her, supposedly at her bank said, yeah, I can see there are some transactions that are already being, you know, triggered and are trying to come across and take about $29,000 out of your account. And uh, he said, you've got to act fast. Go ahead and move this money into a different account, and I can set that up for you. <clears throat> and said, you know, do, don't tell anybody about this because anybody who knows might be able to help, you know, the scammers get you. And so uh, she moved her money over, and, you know, he said, once we get this transferred, I'll, I'll give you the, the ways to, you can access it. And then once she transferred the money, she never heard from the guy again, of course. And after, you know, waiting on that and calling, <clears throat> she finally called her bank, and they said, we have no record of anything like that going on. And there wasn't anything she could do about it. So psychologically, the scammers did the same thing to her <clears throat> as this visual image. They created a context in which the facts seemed to be worse than they really were. And then they did what they call an amygdala hijack on her. Now, your amygdala is a part of your brain that responds to events and, and that creates that fight or flight or freeze kind of thing. It, it, it's, a, it's a great, in terms of saving us from danger, but it makes us react, not think. We stop thinking in order to just run or fight, you know, or hide. And so <clears throat> within a second, that, once that amygdala gets activated, we stop our critical thinking skills. Actually, the blood flow is redirected in the brain from your frontal cortex, where you do your critical thinking, to your amygdala. And then your amygdala sends message to your adrenal glands that releases adrenaline and cortisol, and there's just this physical reaction that you get into, right? So it's a very real thing called an amygdala hijack. Scammers know this. And so they begin to create fear based on some facts, right? She did have a pop-up window that said you were being hijacked. That was part of her real experience. 
And then they gave her a number to do something about it. But little did she know, her computer had been hijacked, but she was talking with the hijackers. So an amygdala, amygdala hijack involves certain things. A strong emotional reaction. A sudden onset. So that, you, you know, something's happening, you've got to do something about it. And then often you regret your actions later because you acted out of fear or out of the emotion rather than out of good judgment. So the scammer's strategy is this. You create fear based on some experience. You offer help. You encourage the target to stay in control by following your advice. You isolate the person from other people's point of view that would maybe speak rationally to them. And then you praise the target person for being wise and taking care of the issue immediately. And that's how you begin to manipulate images on the screen or in their mind to what's going on. Scammers use fear to trigger the amygdala. Fear of loss, fear of missing out, fear of people laughing at us. Well, let's look at some of these examples in the Bible. Um, the first recorded scam in the Bible is where? Genesis. That's right. Genesis chapter 3, right? Adam and Eve were the first scammies, right? The serpent was the first scammer. So if you know the story, um, Adam and Eve are in the garden. God has said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, lest you die. And then as they're out playing, having tending the garden, Adam and Eve come to the tree, and there's this talking serpent in there, right? And the serpent says, did God really say, don't eat of the tree? And Eve responds, um... Well, yeah, he did say that. So, but she didn't turn and walk away at that point. She kept talking to the serpent. Now, that's the thing. The longer you talk to a scam artist, the more likely you are to fall to their scam. So, the, the serpent then begins to say, well... God knows that if you eat of this, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him, right? That's kind of the fear of missing out, right? If you don't do this, then you're missing out on some things, and God knows that. He's beginning to twist their perspective to take it away from the truth to what he wants them to think. Because once he gets them to think what he wants them to think, he can begin to control them and move them in a certain direction, just like the scam artist with the lady. And so Eve saw that the fruit was good for food, pleasant to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom. The shift in perspective was almost complete at that point, right? It wasn't, oh, this fruit causes death. It was, this fruit is good and pleasant and you can gain wisdom by it. The serpent has shifted her perspective from the truth to a lie. Knowing good and evil 
does not lead to the truth, but only to various perspectives. If the devil can get you to see things from his perspective, he can shape your behavior. Just like the lady who got scammed. And this is when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The truth isn't a set of facts. The truth is a relationship with God through Jesus. If if Adam and Eve had gone back to God and said, Hey, God, we need to talk with you about this situation that we heard from the serpent. Things could have turned out differently, right? But they decided against their relationship with God to follow the words of the serpent. Just like, you know, the lady with the, that was scammed out of the money, one of the things that the, the scam artist said to her was, you know, don't, don't call your three children. We need to act on this immediately. When, when you, you start getting taken out of the relationships um, that, that help you see the truth. The longer you talk with the devil, the more likely you're to fall victim to his lies. Don't argue with the devil. Just tell him to shut up and go back to God, to what God has to say. You're not going to win an argument with the devil. He's too crafty. He has too much practice in lying over the millennia, you know. So let's look at a couple other examples about how this works. Numbers 13. Um, this is the story about the, ten, the 12 spies that went into the promised land to look at, uh, you know, when, when the children of Israel, God had led them out of the wilderness and were, they were ready to go into the promised land. And so they were spying it out to see, you know, is this a really great land? What do we need to do to, to conquer this? Because they'd received the promise from God, I will give you this land. And so... Moses had sent 12 spies, one from each tribe, into the land, and they'd come back with this great report and with this big bunch of grapes um, that it is a land flowing with milk and honey. Um, But the report wasn't completely rosy. There were also reports that um, there are a lot of giants in the land. And so let me read Numbers 13, starting at verse 30. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there were of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. Nephilim were giants um, purportedly of kind of demonic birth. The descendants of Anak had come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in their own eyes, and we looked the same to them. I'm sorry, we looked like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. So you hear that perspective, right? We looked like grasshoppers. Well, I don't know about you, but when I'm out at the farm, I just step on grasshoppers, right? They're no real threat to me. 
And so they saw themselves as grasshoppers before the inhabitants of the land. Their perspective was skewed a bit. But they weren't walking in the truth that God had said, I'm going to give you this land. The God who had brought them out of Egypt, the God who had helped them cross the Red Sea, who had defeated the armies of Egypt, who had kept them with food in the wilderness, the God who fulfills his promises says, I'm going to take you into this land. But their perspective was different than the truth. And so the ten spies used their words to scam the people. They were afraid, so they wanted the crowd to believe what they believed. And so they used their words to shift the perspective of the group. And so they decided not to enter the land, uh, the promised land. Um, as a result, God said, I am tired of these folks. Um, they will never enter this. This generation will not enter the promised land. And then the people regretted that, right? Um, and, and here we go. Once you get scammed, once you get through that amygdala phase and you're not full of adrenaline, you're not panicked, you regret your actions as part of that. Another passage that we see, um, so, so that's kind of a couple examples of where the superpower was used against them, where they were scammed because their perspective was shifted. So I want to focus on a couple more where this, you can use this superpower to help you overcome those things. And so, you know, one of the first ones was Abraham. He is what they consider to be the father of the superpower, Right? So Abraham, we read in Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 18. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offering, offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what God had promised to do. So Abraham learned to use the superpower of separating his perspective from the truth. And he kept his faith in the truth, even though his perspective, I'm 100 years old, my wife is 90 years old, we are way past the age of having children. But he knew the truth is that if God says he's going to do this, then the truth is that God is going to do this. As a result, Abraham is known as the father of all those who have faith in the truth. King David was another one who used the superpower to his benefit. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, we read the story about David defeating Goliath. But the part I want to focus on is when David first gets there and 
he, he's visiting his brothers, and, and, and so the army of Israel is, is face-to-face with the army of Philistia, and Goliath, this giant, um, is yelling obscenities at the, at the Israelites and intimidating them, and all the army of the Israelites are kind of quaking in, in, their, in their boots, in their sandals. And so, um, so David steps up and he says, I'll fight Goliath. Now, he's just a teenager at this point. So we pick up the story in verse 32. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man. And he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried, it, carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised, loudmouthed Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. King Saul saw Goliath and thought of an enemy that was too big to be conquered. David saw Goliath and saw, this is an enemy that I can't miss hitting. A change in perspective, right? David knew the truth that God had been with him in the past. And he could see this giant as unconquerable, but David chose to say, this is just another enemy of God. And God has helped me overcome the enemies in the past. I've killed a lion, I've killed a bear, I can kill this giant. Saul's perspective of David is different than David's perspective of himself. And you have to learn to walk in the truth of who God says you are, not in the perspective of who others say you are. David's identity is based on the truth of God's faithfulness to, his, to him in the past. Now, one of the other things is that interesting in this is how David projects himself to the end of the story where he is already successful, right? And so by doing that, builds a lot of confidence in, in, in how the story is going to turn out. You see this when he says... The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine, right? He's already seeing the end of the story, and the end of the story is, I'm victorious. And I want to show you what that looks like from this visual image. I have my little guy here. So, move my little measuring tape off of there. 
Now, I got my little guy here. Yeah. You know, he's about the right size. Let's make him a little bit bigger, right? About the right size for that car, maybe a little smaller. So here we are with this guy at the beginning of the story, right? He's looking down the road, and the vans get bigger the further down the road. And if you think of these vans as giants or troubles in your life, the trouble in front of me doesn't seem too big, but the troubles get bigger the further down the road, the path of life that they go. So the little trick that David does is he says, all right, I'm not going to look at this like it's the beginning of the story. Um, um, let, me, let me copy him so I'm not cheating. Okay. So make a copy of him. You can see they're the same size. But he begins to tell the story from the end. Right? So King Saul sees little David. David says, I'm a giant killer. He sees himself at the end of the story and says, the God, because of his past, the God who has saved me from the paw of the lion, the God who saved me from the paw of the bear, he's going to give me victory over this as well. So rather than being at the beginning of the story, looking at all of these giants he has to overcome, he's already standing at the end of the story saying, God has given me victory. And that's the truth. So learning to walk in the truth rather than learning to live in the perspective that others are trying to force on you is a superpower. Jesus said, if you believe in me, follow my teaching, you will be my disciples, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus practiced this as well. Hebrews 12.2 says, For the joy set before him, Jesus, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And that phrase, for the joy set before him. You know, as Jesus prayed in the garden, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but thou will. He began to project on the other side of this battle, is the joy of the Lord. On the other side of this sacrifice that I'm going to make, I'm going to sit down at the throne on the right hand of the throne of God. He projected himself to the end of the story, and that gave him strength to go through the midst of the story. Because he knew sometimes we get to the middle of the story, and we think that's the end. We get to the, down into the valley, and we think, I'm going to die here in this valley, but that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is that we come out of the wilderness, that we come out of the valley, and that through Christ we have been saved. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we are to live by faith and not by sight. Now, a lot of people will criticize Christians because, oh, well, they're just in blind faith. But faith is not blind. Faith just doesn't look at our perspective, at our circumstances. Faith looks at the truth. Faith keeps our eyes on the truth of God rather than on our perspective. Just as we know the truth 
about the vans being the same size, we know the truth that God is bigger than our perspective, our circumstances. So I want to talk with you about how to deal with an amygdala hijack. How when you're in the midst of the devil talking to you and tempting you and trying to shift your perspective from the truth, how do you handle that? First thing, take a deep breath. A good cleansing, deep belly breath. Okay? Genesis 2-7 says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Breath is very central to who we are and how God has made us. And just taking that deep breath helps us kind of shift the focus from our hijacked amygdala to our prefrontal cortex so we can begin to think again. Belly breathing, you know, where your belly expands as you breathe, activates the diaphragm. And there are nerves that run from the diaphragm to parts of your brain that help calm it down. Next, acknowledge your emotions. If you're trying to help somebody else through this, you can do this for others. This in and of itself engages the prefrontal cortex again. How do I feel right now? Well, I feel anxious. What has triggered my feelings? Well, somebody looked at me crossways. Why do I feel this way? This is how my mom used to look at me before she hit me. I don't know. But acknowledging that and respecting that, that I have these feelings, but these feelings don't define me, can help you then be in touch with yourself and to move forward in what's going on. Reframe the situation. Ask yourself if the situation really warrants the emotions that it has triggered in you. A lot of times we're reacting to the past when our amygdala gets hijacked. You know, when the lady said, oh, when the lady was on her computer and this pop-up box came and, and she was told, oh, your money's at risk, you know, it triggered in her a lot of anxiety, which is understandable. Part of that is to ask yourself, will this situation matter a year from now? That somebody looked at me crosswise or somebody complained about me, I've survived that in the past, in a year from now is the situation going to be that dire. Recall other times that you have succeeded in similar situations. When we realize that we've lived through bad times or that times that we imagined would be bad and they didn't happen, it gives us confidence to move forward. What are the learning opportunities here, Right? Every situation helps us learn something. You know, part of, you know, when a pop-up box says, oh, your computer's been hijacked, call this number. It's a Microsoft helpline. Well, maybe you should go on the web and look for Microsoft and see what their number is and compare it. Or when somebody says, oh, I'll transfer you to your bank, saying, no, I'll call my bank myself. Right? What can you control in the situation? 
What values do you need to live by in the current situation? Are there others that you can help? Sometimes taking the focus off yourself and putting it onto others can help calm your amygdala and get you back into a rational perspective. Next, take action. Mood follows behavior. You know, sometimes we, because of our amygdala, you know, there's the flight, there's the fight, but there's also the freeze. And we're like, I don't know what to do right now. I'm just going to sit here. But just getting up and doing something helps us get over that inertia, right? If I'm overwhelmed by schoolwork I've got to do, just pulling out a sheet of paper and putting my name on top, just writing that first sentence can get me moving, you know? If my house is just dirty and I don't know what to do to get going on cleaning it, just pick the countertop and do it, you know? Just take some action, and the motivation will follow quite often. Separate yourself from the disturbing situation. If the devil is speaking in your ear, run away. Stop listening. You know, as Adam and Eve were talking with the devil... And the devil, the serpent was saying, you know, what did God really say? The longer you listen, the longer you're in that situation, the harder it's going to be for you to extract yourself. So just sometimes separating yourself is a good start. Get advice from others who have your best interest at heart. If, God, if Adam and Eve had gone back to talk with God, the whole thing might have turned out a lot differently. You know, if the 10 spies had taken time to say, well, you know, God has promised us this. God has done so much for us in the past. Um, that might have turned out differently. Speak positively. You know, Caleb said, yeah, there are giants in the land, but God has said he would do this for us. He will make it happen. David spoke positively, positively about the situation in his life. God has done this for me already. I know he will do it today. Learn what works for you. You know, part of the story I didn't talk about with David is that when Paul, King Saul says, okay, I'll let you go fight the giant. And, and King Saul says, let me give you my armor and my sword. But the armor was too big and the helmet and the sword and it wasn't something David was used to using. He didn't fight the bear and the lion with those things. He fought the bear and a lion with a staff and with a slingshot. And then strengthen your faith in the truth over the perspective of your life. Abraham did this quite often. As he looked at his own body getting older and his wife's body getting older, God gave him a name. He said, I'm going to name you Abraham, which means father of nations. And I'm going to give you the name Sarah for your wife, which means mother of nations. And so every day when you call yourself, strengthen yourself in the truth that this is the promise of God for me. I'm going to be the father of nations. My wife is going to be the mother of nations. God also took him outside and said, look at the stars of the heaven and count them. And this will be the number of your descendants. And so Abraham had this visual illustration of God's promise that could strengthen his faith in the truth. 
these last two, uh, and then the next one, praise. Praise God and encourage yourself. Walk in the promises of God by praising him for his goodness, especially when your perspective is the opposite. When times are hard, that's the best time to praise God for his faithfulness to you. Encourage yourself for taking even small steps. Recognize your efforts, even though it's just the beginning, and maybe you have a long road to travel. Everything starts with the first step. And then be compassionate to yourself. Be self-compassionate. By knowing you will make mistakes at times, but God's mercies are new every morning. So these last two points, praise and take action, trigger a release of serotonin and dopamine in your body that helps you feel the peace of God. This is how God built us, the biology of spirituality. Learning to speak the truth to set yourself and others free is a great superpower. It can not only thwart a main strategy of the devil, but it can also remove the chains that bind us. And we don't have to just do it for ourselves. We can help others do this as well. The more you use the superpower, the better you will get at it. Ask the Holy Spirit to teach you something new about this every day, and soon you will be living in a new freedom that you never thought possible. Let me pray for you. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who shares power and authority with us. When you created Adam and Eve, you said go forth and have dominion over this earth, over creation. That you give permission for us to bless people in your name and that you will follow up on that and make it happen that you give us the power to choose the truth over perspective and that we can walk in the freedom of your love and of your forgiveness and of your purpose for our lives. Lord, as we go from here today, let these seeds take root in our hearts, in our minds, and in our bodies uh, that we might be salt and light in the world around us and that you might receive glory. In Jesus' name.